A special education teacher, an administrator, and a lawyer walk into a bar. And our conversations can get pretty lively. And now you'll join us while we talk all about special education and the public school system. I'm Robin Fabiano, a special education teacher and a building-based student services administrator. And I'm joined by Abby Hanscom, a district-level student services administrator, and Angela Smagula, a founding partner at Con and Smagula, specializing in educational law. We've been working together across multiple districts since 2009 and have lots of opinions about special education. In this podcast, we hope to share information, lessons learned, interviews with VIPs, and bring some humor to an otherwise serious topic. But before we get started, three disclaimers. One, the views shared on this podcast are our own and don't represent the views of the district in which we work. Two, Everyone might want Khan and Smagula as their attorneys, but Angela is not giving legal advice during this podcast. Three, although there are federal laws governing special education, we work in Massachusetts, a state that has extra protections, so some of what we speak about may not apply in your state. So let's get started. Hi, Angela. Hi, Abby. How are you guys? Terrific. How are you? Good. Hi, guys. I've been really immersed in the um, Olympics this year. I'm immersed every year in the Olympics, and I'm even more so every this four year. Years. Oh, every two years, actually, right? Years. That's right. Yeah. Winter and summer. And I love them both equally, and I love all the human interest stories. And I'm super sad where there are such significant time zone issues because I wake up to the breaking news and I don't get to see the results live. So that's kind of a bummer for me. Um, but I think the human interest stories are just as exciting as the actual events. And um, tonight we're going to be talking about one of the stories that caught all three of our attention. Um, Becca Myers, the swimmer who ended up actually not going to the Tokyo Olympics because she wasn't allowed to bring her PCA or personal care assistant with her to Tokyo due to the coronavirus restrictions on how many delegates each country could bring with them. So delegates are not only athletes, but coaches and support staff as well. And in the story, she is requesting as a accommodation for her disability, she's a deafblind athlete, she's a swimmer, that she have a trusted PCA with her. And she has had previous approval to bring her mother as her PCA. Um, and the Olympic committee said no, that she had to use um, the delegated staff person because they only had so many slots, number of people allowed, and they had one PCA for 34 athletes. And um, she didn't feel like that was providing for her safety. And so she dropped out. And so tonight we're just going to tackle that topic. It may be, um, it may be something people are wondering about, like why you would need a PCA or why it's important for certain disability types. Um, and I think sometimes people feel like a PCA or personal care assistant is someone who works primarily with people with mobility issues or medical issues. You need to be a an LPN or a licensed nurse to do that. And that is not the case. I think that's important, Robin, because, you know, I always like to go back and think about the fact that we're all just temporarily able-bodied, like at this moment, possibly, and that we've all probably experienced some mobility 
impairments over our lifespan. And if we live long enough, if we're lucky to live long enough, we're likely to uh, experience other um, impairments over time. And so this isn't a conversation about just other people who have very severe or complex disabilities. This is really an interesting conversation about all people who in some point in their life may need assistance, right? And a PCA is a really important role and they're the kind of folks that in our school experience, you know, we have very limited experience with because we have other kinds of support people, but certainly in adult services, they're a critical support person. And they're often folks that are providing very intimate, personal um, support for people around toileting, hygiene, and other kind of very personal bodily supports. And this kind of reminds me of other conversations we've had about bodily autonomy and um, respect and privacy. And so I think some of those features are what this uh, Olympic story is actually about. Well, if you Google accessibility in the Olympics, they really did a great deep dive into making sure that the Olympics and the Olympic village were accessible. I mean, if you look through the 153 page document, there are um, very, very specific requirements for the buildings, for the village, for the rooms, for the floors, for the materials used on the benches, for the locations of the benches along the way. They have training guides for all of the staff working in the facility, even based on disability categories. So how to speak with someone with an intellectual disability, how to speak with someone who is blind, how to support someone with a um, an emotional disability. So it seems like they were being very proactive on how to set up the Olympics. And this guide was written in 2017 when they were building and preparing for the Olympics. And then I think COVID mm-hmm. changed all the requirements. So I think it's really the COVID implication and not necessarily that the Olympics were not prepared for these disabled athletes. Right. It has to be that way because on the face of it, one PCA for 30 plus people is insane. It makes no sense. And it would not meet the reasonableness test for the ADA is American, you know, ADA theory would apply. And this is an international context. So we have to think there's a variety of, of probably, uh, components to how they develop their perspective, but the reality is COVID does change things. But we've learned certainly in public school, like we still have to accommodate and we still have to meet kids' needs. And so I'm still amazed that a one to 34 ratio was ever even contemplated or considered appropriate. Just from a risk management standpoint, it's a terrible number. Well, I was thinking, imagine if that PCA got COVID. I mean, of course, then they're cooked, right? There's nothing they can do. There's no backup. So in our COVID planning, we, provided for backup after backup, I feel like we provided additional supports and more staff and, um, you know, more resources where it looks like the Olympics stripped their resources completely. It's very numerical analysis. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, it's interesting because what we heard all year with um, adjusting to COVID in schools with special ed was that the fact that COVID was happening didn't impact your rights. So the fact that COVID was, you know, causing people not to get services pursuant to their IEP or or causing people not to have as much access as they otherwise would, if it wasn't COVID, what we were being told from the federal government and from DESE 
and trying to implement was that that was not to impact your rights as a disabled individual. But here, that's what they said. They said, sorry, it's COVID. So you can't have the one person that we previously allowed since 2017 because of COVID. But if you read the editorials that are protesting this move by um, the Olympic Committee, it, 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 they're saying like it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't wipe away your rights just because there's some COVID restrictions. Um, and then the solve for it, one to thirty-four, is not a solve. So it's not a it's not reasonable, as Abby said. Well, and she's a deaf-blind athlete. So when the PCA is wearing masks, which is a requirement of any staff who are um, in the Olympic Village. Not only can she not hear, but now she can't lip read. Yeah. Right? She can't see either. So, I mean, to have a person that doesn't know you doing intimate things with your body and not being able to communicate with them effectively is scary. Yeah. The irony is thick because it's the Paralympics, right? Like these are the people that do this. This is their living is supporting athletes with disabilities. And then it gets all mucked up. Well, you know, it's interesting not to go to another human interest story, but this is the first year that the Paralympic um, medalists are being paid the same amount as able-bodied Olympians. They passed the law, the last Olympics, and then or after the last Olympics and had to back pay the Olympians um, the, to compensate them in the same way. And then this year would be the first time, you know, you truly get paid the same amount as any other athlete at the same time. You're not like owed money a couple months later. And then she's poised to, um, to medal. She's like an international superstar. They compare her to some of the other really well-known swimmers like Katie Ledecky and, um, she's not able to come. And that's, again, her livelihood. Well, and also it's very exploitive because one of the main commercials on the Olympics right now is a, a swimmer that doesn't have her bottom limbs. And she's an adoptee from Serbia or somewhere. And that's the, the tearjerker commercial that's running literally every five seconds. But it's, it's so it's kind of gross. Well, you know, don't get us started on inspiration porn, Ange, because this will take a a left turn this conversation. But the reality is that um, the Olympics are like a prime uh, example, the commercial space for the Olympics of the perpetuation of a lot of mythology about people with disabilities as inspirational and overcomers and all of this stuff that is really disturbing. So I agree with you, Robin. I think this this is a good example of the whole thing just turned upside down on its head, right? Like the best intentions in the world and the 153-page manual were of no use in this moment. And uh, this person elected to, to not compete rather than be unsafe in that environment. And her messaging is for other athletes in the future, right? I think that's significant as we've seen historically through the history of special education, it's those stands, mm-hmm. right, that um, that make a that make a difference. I mean, the other thing that I don't think we plan to talk about, and we don't have to, since we did our mental health conservatorship episode, the mental health piece has really blown up with 
um, Osaka at Wimbledon and now Simone Biles and mental health as a equal brother to physical health and um, supports for mental health in order to facilitate um, success. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. It's like, why does it have to be such a fight? As you said, every um, special education um, milestone is because of a fight. And I mean, I guess that's every milestone, every legal case, right? It's kind of depressing. Yeah. I mean, change is hard, right? Like as we've seen, change is too hard and and people dig in and mental health has a long way to go and it's come a long way, even in our lifetime, half of our lifetime. But it's still like it's still pretty politicized, it's still pretty um uh polarized. I'm gonna only use words that ends words that ends in eyes. Sort of the the conversation around mental health is not that healthy. <laughs> So Angela, do you think going back to um, Becca um, Mayers, do you think that she has a legal case against the Olympic committee? Do you think that's where that's going to go next? So the question is, what's a reasonable accommodation for her? And so with these types of cases, you really have to drill down on the on the facts and circumstances and then apply the ADA law to it. So it would be hard for me to, I think, weigh in without a lot more information that the media is not telling us about. But on its face, when you, from from a legal perspective, when I read, this is why she needed a trusted PCA and their accommodation for her based on COVID restrictions, is 1 to 34. I mean, that that on its face is laughable, right? Um, just in terms of what the purpose of a PCA is and what's reasonable and her, and her specific disability. So, um, I mean, I think, again, COVID ends up sort of like fucking everything up, but you can't really have it both ways, right? You can't argue that, like, you know, this is because of COVID we can violate your rights or this is because of COVID and none of your rights get violated. And it depends on just sort of who the audience is or, you know, how powerful the person, I guess, at the end of the day, we have to sort of see if we ever get out of COVID, we have to sort of see how it all plays out. But at the end of the day, her, her position is that her rights were violated and on its face, it looks like it. And there's nothing you can do. Like, why did they tell her that? I mean, they canceled the Tokyo Olympics, right? Like, weren't they supposed to be yes. last year? All the banners say so like 2020 because they canceled right, So it. why is this happening? Why is she learning this and has to pull out of anything at the 11th hour? I don't, I don't know. I think also we're looking at this through an American lens, which is which is really shaped by the understanding of the ADA. And it may very well be that the International Organizing Committee for the Olympics and the Paralympics uses a different lens. They may use a more globalized understanding of disability. They're they're working with athletes from like around the globe. And there may be cultural considerations we don't understand about that it was somehow hierarchically uh, tenable for them to say this in a way um, that doesn't work for us in America, right? But I want to say that um, manual they put out is 
highly detailed about like the type of treads on the curve of the stair for grippability, like the height of every handrail. And the reality is to not contemplate basic human accommodations when you've contemplated the minutiae of every curb cut strikes me as uh, poor planning, you know, on a good day and kind of uh, ignorant on a bad day. So I think that's kind of where we would come down. And, and, you know, if, uh, if the Olympics and Paralympics were being hosted in the U S I assume many more ADA analyses would fall into place and it might be unlikely this would happen um, to the swimmer, you know, but. uh, Although I think it was the United States delegation that made the final decision. Right. And they're saying it's because of the COVID restrictions by the international. Yeah. That they're, they're, their list was so short, they could only provide one PCA slot, but that's, I guess, making the list that short was not their control, right? They were working within that constraint. How does this intersect with students who get a lot of support under IDEA under schools and then transition to adult land, which then their rights under IDEA go away and the only rights they have fall under ADA, which are accommodations. So Abby, can you talk a little bit about the difference between the two? Yeah. I mean, so the shift goes from the entitlement to make effective progress in your education, which is a proactive entitlement towards progress to a, um, a guarantee of access, right? Under the ADA. And so you have access to fail your math test. You have access to not make the basketball team, right? That's different under the ADA than under the IDEA, where you have, you know, an entitlement to make effective progress in the life of the school and the academic context that's appropriate for you and all that. And so I think that's a huge shift for folks. And we um, continue to work hard. And we've talked a lot about this to help people understand that even that just shifting that one dimension changes everything for kids and families, uh, because it really does shift to access and it's, it's less of an entitlement and more of a, um, you know, certainly the ADA is enshrined in law, but the reality is uh, we know there are still, you know, buildings that are 200 years old that are not ADA compliant and nor do they have to be until it's time to fix them. And then people put off fixing them because they can't afford to make those changes. Right. So the, the age of 22, or when you get your diploma and your eligibility for IDEA really does impact a student's or a person's um, maybe ability to get support. The scope of of that support. support. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, shifting to a non-entitlement based model, I think is certainly significant. I think that for this adult swimmer, she's working like without a safety net. Right. And so she has to make these really hard decisions because she doesn't have a backup. There's no, um, there's no mechanism to like appeal that decision to some other place to get a different answer in any timely fashion. I mean, Angela, I don't know the average life of an 88 case is probably like eight years through the courts or something crazy like that. For sure. For sure. When you make an allegation of discrimination in Massachusetts, you have to go to the Massachusetts Commission, MCAD, the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, the MCAD. And you have to file there first um, before you go to court. So 
um, it's a long process. And we don't know if she's going to take it to the next level. She hasn't, none of the articles mentioned that she's going to, you know, sue or, or bring a discrimination lawsuit um, against any of the organizations. So we don't know if that's going to happen or not. Yeah. And like any other high profile elite athlete, she probably has to make decisions around training time, um, tr- time off from training. You know, every decision she makes takes away time, energy, and resources from doing something else she wants to do. And her life may be very structured and scripted to accomplish her her goals as an athlete. And so I also think she's probably weighing endorsement deals and other uh, financial obligations and future uh, p- possibilities. She probably left some money on the table in a lot of places by making this decision um, as a entrepreneur and as a businesswoman. And I think that's another kind of important factor we should never forget about, you know, this level of athlete that's really serious um, decisions that are far ranging in their lives. I mean, that's an interesting point regarding damages because she was definitely um, an athlete that was expected to meddle. And the, the these athletes, just like the other athletes, have a lot of endorsements. And the Olympics only happens for certain athletes every four years. So there's a window of time, right, in which you can take advantage of those situations. So, I mean, I was glad to see that it was a story that got picked up, right? It wasn't like a, you know, on NPR at five, it was on NPR at five and six and seven and eight. And it was on the post and in the times and on Yahoo sports and sports illustrated. Right. So that's all really good. Um, and you know, some of the reporting was better than, than others, but it'll be interesting to see sort of what other Olympic stories happen along the way. I think there'll probably be more things that pop up as it relates to um, disability rights and supporting athletes in that regard. Well, and as we speak, the Paralympians haven't been competing yet. So as we're recording this, it's just the able-bodied Olympians. And so I think you're right. More stories will come. And again, I'm interested, you know, God forbid this PCA gets COVID and what happens to these 34 other people, 33 other people now, because she's not there that this person is supposed to support. Three others are also blind, right? Yeah, the that PCA is going to be pretty busy, folks. Let's just be clear: a lot of these like um, Olympic villages and things span multiple college campuses. There's like trams and buses that take you at certain times from place to place on a very scripted schedule. It makes no sense to me that a single person is who would take that job. That's like an insane context to operate in safely. I guess the other kind of big picture thing I would just say is that the Olympics are kind of tarnished a little bit in their, in their, from their glory days, which I remember, you know, in the seventies as a kid, like looking up to Nadia Comaneci and all of that. And I think we should continue to talk about just the, the impact of this very high performance, high demand training that sometimes confers a disability on the competitor. And then at times these very young teenagers are compelled to continue to compete while injured, while very impacted. You know, it's a really multi-layered issue that I think is going to come into the fore much more. Abby, I saw that story about um, comparing Simone Biles and Carrie Strug. 
Is that yes, her name? Carrie Strong, yes. the other gymnast who um, went down the vault and hurt her leg and then was encouraged by her coach to vault again for gold. Yep. Probably, you know, ending her career, shattering her leg because it was already broken the first time. And they had already been positioned to win gold. And rather than saying, are you okay? Should you stop? He made her, he didn't make her, but he um, strongly encouraged her in a way that made it very hard to refuse on national TV in the Olympics to go again and vault injured. And, um, you know, the difference between that situation and Simone Biles, who is now being commended for putting her mental health first and like what a difference, you know, these 20 years have made. Yep, absolutely. And let's hope things continue in that direction because you only end up with healthier kids in the system and adults coaching them later. You know, a lot of these folks turn into the next generation of coaches. And so I think it's really, it's a, it's a place to watch in our field for sure. Yeah. It's interesting to see how the landscape has shifted with, with that Carrie Strug and Simone Biles. And then I was reading something about Ledecky, the swimmer, who like didn't win gold in in a certain uh, race. An Australian swimmer won it. And, you know, she was, a really, she was really expected to win it and it was disappointing. But her takeaway was sort of like, it's better for the sport that somebody else won. Because if there's one person just like always winning... The other people are motivated to do to do more, but having it go sort of back and forth is is helpful. I mean, she said that in her losing press conference, right? And then she went on to win the fifteen hundred meters, which is like I think swimming like eighty thousand miles or something. It's like the first time women swimmers have done it. Yeah. So this yeah. like you know this like bumper sticker of like be the best, anything that you can be the best at is not really how it is anymore, right? Like it's maybe like mediocrity is okay. No, I, I would sort of like, I would say it's more of like understanding that social emotional functioning matters. Right. And is central to how people perform like that Carrie Strug thing. You know, she's like 15 years old. She's been removed from her family. She lives on the freaking ranch with Bella Caroli and his wife. It's not good. I mean, you know, from our lens as, as teachers, what we would say is this poor kid has like, many support systems removed and other kind of supports that um, expect her to perform in certain ways in place of her parents or her church or her school, right? Those are important things and at a very key developmental time in her life. And so I think that there's no surprise that this person, all he has to do is say, can you do it in a hopeful way? And she responds because he's like her dad, right? And so she says, I'll try. And then she vaults on a broken ankle. And we look at that and say, she's like courageous. And now 25 years later, we look and say like, she's been brainwashed. Like what the hell happened there? It's horrible. Right, But that's all, that's all the sort of drive to be the best at something. Right. Well, it's part of the media narrative that does the champion thing. So you'll watch the Olympics to find out who the one winner is. Right. But so now it's sort of like that. But you see it across all sports as well, because they sort of say like now in tennis too, like, oh, you know, Susie Q took time off to have a kid and then come back or stepped away. Uh, Ashley Barty, who just won at Wimbledon, like the the storyline was like, oh, she quit tennis because she was like, I'm not enjoying it. And she quit and like played cricket and like hung out then came back to tennis and now won Wimbledon. Um, But um, like this idea, 
I think the narrative has changed, which is what Abby was saying, which is that you, you sort of need to figure out the, the whole person, not just the drive to be the best that you can and have everything else fall by the wayside until it trips you up, right? Or I think the now, narrative is if you can be the best while you are taking care of your whole being, you don't have to just have a single-minded focus where you don't take care of your health and your nutrition and you spend time with your family and all of that. You can do all of it and it actually could make you a better competitor. Right. So what is, so then it turns out like, then what is the definition of what's, what is to be the best is to be the best to do as well as you can do and also feel happiness in these other pieces, right? Is that the best? And then maybe you don't, you know, get the gold medal, but you get the silver medal or you get no medal, but you experience the event. Like all of those pieces are, are part of the conversation, which they definitely weren't in the Carrie Strug, you know, days. No. And, and it is of note that a lot of the people doing this are women and young women from a different generation that have really thought about maybe their wellness in a more holistic way than we were raised or the people older than us were raised. And so I, I think it's really cool. And there's the gymnasts, the female gymnasts who are wearing the like full body outfits as opposed to the teeny tiny outfits. And all of that, I think, is part of this larger dialogue um, about like who owns your, your body and how you get to use it. Yeah, like the Norwegian hand. Like, I think this is now an Olympic episode, period. It's not just, <laughs> like, which is OK, right, Robin? That's OK, right? And we may never... <laughs> I love, I love the Olympics. And so I could keep going. I have so many human interest stories that I could keep talking about. But I think we could have this episode. I think this episode can just be sort of like, you know, what we initially planned to be. And then we take a deep dive into the Olympic village, which is okay. But the Norwegian handball team got fined for wearing shorts. So crazy. I think a lot of the interesting thing about the Olympics, whether you like it or don't like it or feel like it's exploitive or not exploitive, it does highlight a lot of what's happening sort of writ large in society in a way that captures people's attention. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's why we like to watch the Olympics. Right. People are drawn to it because it brings controversy, human interest, you know, motivation, athleticism, family, family drama you know, people overcoming like really, really interesting stories to dedicate their lives to a sport that only one person is going to win this medal. It's really, it's very, um, it draws me in. Yeah. And I just think, you know, it's not a terrible thing if the conversation gets broadened for all those things to include like mental health and safety. And how about some like accommodations so that people can really perform, you know, like that seems very reasonable. So on that note, I think it's a note. conversation. I agree. Well, as always, ladies, it's great talking to you. It's been great. Robin, this day. is gonna be a, this is gonna be a good one to edit. Yeah, have fun editing. <laughs> good night. <laughs> All right. Good night, everyone. Thanks for listening. Good night. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. If you have any questions, you can reach us at astalpodcast at gmail.com.